In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There is a a very thin line in human experience between realism and despair and suicide. And the story of the passion uh, charts out to the absolute nth degree the line between realism about life and the human condition on the one hand and despair and suicide on the other. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that place that is the exact meeting ground of realism with despair. This is the place of Christ on the cross. And the text this morning is 28 of John 9, where he says, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, I thirst. Now, what, what was finished? You know that this was an historical event. This actually occurred. Had we been teleported back there, it would be very much like it is reported. Uh, this uh, actually occurred in the way it was expressed, and I could give you reasons for saying that. But accept that, that this was an actual event. Um, what had been finished was a, a terrible injustice on the part of the uh, synagogue and temple against the prophet Jesus and a kind of um, Machiavellian, somewhat sordid power play on uh, the part of the Romans. Uh, Two terrible things were finished when it says Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said, I thirst. Now the first thing that was finished was the finish of all his hopes for his religion. He had sought for three years to make a serious dent in uh, the religion in which he had grown up, and he had inspired a tremendous negative response because he focused on the fact that outward appearances mean nothing before God. All that matters is the inward. And that was an enormous attack upon a highly ritualized religion. He had said that the origin of evil is not out there, but lies within the human heart. He said fornication and impurity and jealousy and anger does not come from outside a man. He had said it comes from inside. So this had been a real shock because it had evened out the human condition and everybody was the same, all originators of deep and serious um, wrong. And that did not exactly get a happy hearing. He had said that the law of God could not be rationalized or bent or extenuated. For example, no divorce was permitted by Jesus while his religion shilly-shallied about a whole bunch of cases. 
So on the one hand, Jesus had made the law very, very strong, and at the same time, his attitude towards lawbreakers was totally forgiving. And that's how he do. He had strengthened the demand of God's law, and yet he had welcomed the lawbreakers after the fact. Now, these themes of the strengthening of the law and the ironic welcoming of the lawbreaker, his emphasis on the inward, to forget about the outward, and his belief that the level playing field of human relations was governed by the embryo of evil or sin that lies in every man. This created a kind of inner game of tennis within his denomination, which resulted in a, a kind of vomiting out of what he had done. Now, I don't know if you are involved in any kind of uh, boards that have a, want to do good, but if you get on a board, you quickly find out that the purpose that the board meets is entirely subservient to the politics of the board. Anybody here on a family foundation, board for a family foundation? Anyone here ever served in the military? I mean, yes, you've got this enemy out there, but the inner politics of Sarge and the different recruits and all the different things that's going on, and the, the inner, inner game of tennis in, in military and in boards and schools and any kind of human institution is just enervating. And um, you've probably gotten disillusioned with an institution. You ever work for a newspaper? ever worked for any a doctor's office, any institution will always disillusion you. You saw MASH, and that's what it was about. The 70s were about a huge metaphor of disillusionment over institutions that ought to have been better that was expressed in the show MASH. Now, Jesus came here to the death of his hopes for his religion. It's very powerfully captured. In, uh, in the Gospel of St. Matthew where Peter follows from a distance and the Italian filmmaker Pasolini who filmed this scene in 1968 kept the camera at a distance and all you can see in the courtyard is the, a couple of priests are going ballistic about something that somebody is saying somebody rips off his clothes there's a harsh word and there's a slap and that's all you can see but what it was, was Jesus had um, failed in his attempt to renew the religious structure into which he was born. And so when it says, Jesus knowing that all was finished, he, his, he, he failed. He was up there and his mission had failed. And if you've ever tried to change any, if you've ever tried to fight City Hall, anyone here ever tried to really reform the tax structure? Really? Have you ever actually ever really set your mark at trying to do something for the community? Well, if you've succeeded, I'd like to meet you. Um, most people who try to do good become disillusioned and heartbroken. Now, that's not all. He said he knew that everything was finished. Well, something else was finished the death of his hopes for the world. Now, he wasn't that interested in the Romans, if you want to know the historical fact. He was more interested in the Jews because he was living in this inner game of tennis, the Episcopal Church or the Methodist Church or the uh, little issues that go on in the Mennonites. He was focused on religious issues, but 
He too had hoped that his coming would mean a change in the politics of the time, and that somehow the Messiah would herald the end of the Roman occupation. And so he went to Pilate in John 19, and he says to Pilate, the Roman governor, I came to bear witness to the truth, to you, the New York Times, the world, the Congress, the army, the mayor. He's there now in front of the world. And he says, I came to bear witness to the truth. And he elicits a very ironic and brilliant reply from, from the worldly pilot. What is truth? Let's talk. Uh, what, um, what, what, what's interesting, he got a little further with Pilate than he did with the Jews. He got a little further. He sort of struck Pilate as being an interesting character as opposed to being a candidate for extirpation. And he got a little farther with the world, but not very. And then he failed, because there was this political drama in which Pilate had been accused of anti-Semitism because of a massacre up near um, Mount Gerizim. And uh, the emperor had heard about it, and Pilate had been told, you are anti-Semitic, and uh, they don't like you, and unless you can be nice, uh, you are going to be removed to Rome for some ignominious state, the Eastern Front. And um, Pilate was trying to behave, and the way he knew that he could behave is he could get a, a point by doing what the priests wanted him to do, to kill this man somewhat illegally, but get it out of the way. And he was trying to sort of cover his whole background here. And so Jesus got caught up in a little bit of a, I scratch my back if you'll scratch your back, the way of the world, just like you have. Anybody here has ever been fired and ambushed at work? You know how dreadful the world is. You know the world is merciless. Did you see Bonfire of the Vanities? Did you work across the street? <laughs> Do you know how merciless the world, when they want you out, they will get you out. Oh, they'll use a pretext, but they'll get you out because they want you out. If she wants you out, he'll be gotten out. The world is merciless, picked up notice for a moment, and then squashed him. He washed his hands of it, and he was crucified. Now, what have I said so far? What had been finished was the death of his hopes to make a difference in his religion. And that had been met with uh, total rejection. Secondly, he had probably had an ancillary hope to change the world. Remember that song by 10 years after? Well, maybe you don't. I'd love to change the world. Did you live in the 60s? How's it going? Do we have mass transit in Birmingham? How's the smog? You know, what about the tax structure? That's just one thing. The death of his hopes for the world. And so it's really quite um, striking that Jesus says, after this, knowing that it was all finished, he said, I thirst. Well, you know, I thirst. I'm not an optimist. Jesus Christ at the moment could not possibly be, have been an optimist. He had already told what was going to happen, that they would all leave him. Are you an optimist? 
Well, I want to talk you out of it on Good Friday. Now, on Easter, I might give you another clue. But on Good Friday, I want to talk you out of your optimism. Maybe you're optimistic by nature, you know? Maybe you're optimistic by experience. I've only met one person like that ever. Uh, but the point is, um, Jesus coming face to face with the impermeability of the church slash temple and with the massive impermeability of the world said, I thirst. When I see the way it is, my tongue hangs out. I am exhausted. I want to go have a long nap. I thirst. Now, what is this here? Um, I told you that it would be the thin line between realism and despair. He goes back to the same idea at the end. He said he's thirsty, and by the way, he turned back the offer of a Coca-Cola. It says here, they put some Coca-Cola on the sponge that was spiked with a little bit of, uh, you know, Cuba Libre. It was spiked. That was what it was. It was spiked. It was a good thing. And he refused it. Uh, they held it to his mouth, but he refused it. And then when he receives it finally, he says, it is finished, and he dies. Now, it is finished means that it's all done. At the end of the day, I cannot change the world, and I cannot change the temple, and I cannot change myself, and I cannot change you, and I cannot change her, and I cannot change the ones I love the most, and the older they get, the worse they become. I cannot see change in anyone, and most frighteningly, I find that my own alienating personal characteristics become ever more loud and clamoring and alienating. It is finished. Now what is this? This is, it is finished. Was it an acceptance of the way life is? Was it a acquiescence in the way that it can't be changed? Well, here's where I want to come down to it. Jesus Christ here was standing on the edge of a precipice. On one side was the impermeability of institutions and the world and people to alter fundamentally. On the other side was suicide and despair. He seems to have stood. Now, I want to say something about this. Um, the meaning of Good Friday is that we are realistic and no longer Pollyannas about the immutability of the givens of life. Now, why, in fact, life is more tragic than beneficent? Remember, I take that line. It is not 50-50. It is not, well, they take the good with the bad and you come out on top. Or, you know, I've had some good experiences. I married young, had a couple of nice years with her. Um, I had one children that I, one child that didn't reject me. Um, uh, my second marriage was very fulfilling in my 60s. I finally did get to go to Uzbekistan after all these years. Um, there is a beautiful day outside. Um, and uh, there was a group called the Beatles. I mean, all that would say that life is good. But on the other side, 
is all the other things I could mention. And what is tipping the seesaw, the balance, over to the bad, as opposed to suspended, equally balanced, but what tips life always to the bad, always to the bad, is one further fact, and we're just about to deal with it. It's the fact of death. If we didn't die, I would agree with people who are sort of realistic optimists, or have a positive view of life while keeping a few loose ends unspoken. But because of death, I have to tell you that the balance is on the downside. It's the shadow over everyone here. It is a terrible and a profound uh, a truth of a termination. All that we uh, finally uh, are doing in our lives is subject to the futility of termination. And this is why Jesus is standing here on the razor edge between realism and despair is extremely important because the fact that you're going to die I resent it terribly. I fight it with everything I have. Um, you know, like you, I'm struggling against cancer. I'm going to lick this thing. I'm going to triumph over schizophrenia. <laughs> no. Uh, I mean, yes, there was a beautiful life, right? How many guys? Isn't he Russell Crowe? Is that the guy? How many beautiful lives are there? One. And he relapsed after the movie. He's relapsing now. Um, the fact is that the futility of termination makes life always kilter over to the downside because, you know, we lose our teeth, we lose our hair, we can't walk anymore. I've got a tooth that's becoming buck all the time. I knew it was going to happen. I was warned of this when I was 17, but I didn't want to wear braces. Now, I often imagine what my skull will look like when my body is given to science. And Anybody who knew me in life will recognize the skull over at UAB. I'll probably give it to St. Vincent's, but the, 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 uh, the, the, the skull will be very obvious because there's a very, very long-in-the-tooth buck tooth, and uh, that is uh, an absolute destructive, a terrible thing. I wake up at night feeling like a gorilla, and uh, the power of this is that um, it shows me in a kind of Woody Allen way that the balance is going down, 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 because it's all going to be over, no matter how wonderful your love life is, and no matter how many uh, powerful experiences of delicious uh, muscat wine you've been able to have at Bottegas, or no matter how glorious a, a particular experience of love and meeting of true intimacy, vulnerability was in your life, it's all going to be ending like Romeo and Juliet uh, with a coffin. And so um, it is proper to say that it is finished, and it is a terrible thing. Well, all I'm going to do is end this way. I would like to um, convince you today to stand on the abyss of the failure of the attempts very well-meaning to change your life that you have so expended energy in over the years and they basically amount to a hill of beans and a lot of false avenues 
And I'd like you to look at the world as it is just expressed, for example, in today's Birmingham News or any paper you want to read. And you all well know that wars and rumors of wars are always with us. And uh, I'd like you to consider uh, even the life of the institutions you love, like a church or Dartmouth or uh, UAB or uh, some fishing club or some wonderful fraternity, and, uh, and see these uh, political things that crush the life out of even very, very good and well-meaning original things. And I would like you to actually be standing on the abyss just about ready to go over the edge, which is commonly called despair. And I'd like to sort of freeze the moment, freeze the moment, and I'd like to read a sentence to you. Uh, Carol Phillips is one of these typical English agnostic, worldly, you know, Christianity what? A type of secular people that abounds in the British Isles today, especially in Scotland. And uh, she has uh, written, uh, Carol Phillips has a book um, about uh, an African uh, refugee from Africa who uh, becomes an asylum seeker in northern England. And he becomes a kind of safe place for this middle-aged, very unhappy, very bitter retired school teacher in a little village in northern England. Because, as you know, England has completely changed demographically. It's not a white country anymore. It is a substantially colored, uh, as diverse as it can possibly be, a place. And it's a whole different ballgame than what you used to think you wanted to see in the Cotswolds. Well, he gets, uh, uh, this man has a failed and tragic love affair with this failed and tragic woman, and it all ends, of course, in tragedy, wouldn't you know, because it was written in England. But um, there's a powerful line in it that ends what I want to say, and I find it very helpful. Um, the refugee, Solomon is his name, has come from horrific experiences uh, in a civil war in the Congo. And his mother was murdered, and he murdered somebody, and his friend was murdered, and he's left horrific memories behind him that he never fully vouchsafed. But he does say something very vulnerable to this dear but tragic and poignant middle-aged heroine. He says to her this, I can tell you this, I have lost everything. I have come here to begin my life again. It's the climax of the book. I have lost everything. So I have come here to begin my life again. Now I'm not going to short circuit the day which is black and profoundly one-noted. I would be utterly untrue to life if I were to sugarcoat the pill. But I can say this, if you'll hang in for about 36 hours on the knife edge of realism and perhaps get a friend or two, you know, go to an AA meeting or something, and the equivalent in your home, Get a friend or two to kind of put their arms around you, to hold you firm on the place, the razor-sharp trapeze walk, before you actually careen over the edge to what Judas did and to what many of us do, which is suicide. 
and certainly despair. Get them to hold you up for 36 hours. Because if you understand that you've lost everything, you'll be ready to hear something from outside. Only when you have lost all hope of doing anything at all improving for your life. Only then is it feasible for an outside light to shine in there. And um, I'd stand with you right here in the tight walk, or maybe across the arch for 36 hours, and I'd get uh, these three good people to support me with ropes, but I'm not Simon Stylites. But come back on, uh, on uh, Easter morning at 7, or wherever you go, and hear the refreshing word that at least you know that you're now ready to begin your life again. As we're seated, let us pray. Hang us out to dry, dear Father, to the fullest, farthest ledge on the most wide branch so that we are absolutely at the bitter end of our own inability to alter our world lastingly for the good and help us to stay there today, not in despair, but in the moment of understanding, the Joan Didion moment, the, the Dostoevsky moment, the Holbein moment, the moment of the man who was completely dead in the tomb. But by your mercy, suspend us there a little longer. And then in your greater mercy, provide for us the everlasting way out. Amen.